Uh, well, okay. we were trying to decide because you know how I told you about the cat that's befriended us and mm -hmm. lives on my porch. We can't decide if she's stuck on our roof or not. <laughs> she's been there since this morning and she has not gotten down. And so I got the ladder out and tried to get her to come down, but to me, but then she of course walked to the other side of the house and I was like, I'm not chasing this cat around. It's not even my cat. It's <laughs> also don't chase a cat on a roof. <laughs> Super like, dangerous. Yeah. So I'm like, forget it. I was like, we'll see if she comes down. So I put food in her bowl and some treats and we'll see. But I'm like, this freaking cat. Somebody adopt her already. <laughs> All uh, about your roof, man. She likes it. I know. She does. So she was sleeping. Yeah. She was sleeping there. I think she likes to sit because she goes into the backyard and sleeps kind of like on that side of the roof and mm -hmm. like just kind of watches the dogs. <laughs> So she really wants to come inside, but my dogs are not cat-friendly dogs, yeah. so they would tear her apart. Yeah, I know. The dog saw a baby squirrel in our tree today, mm -hmm. and John's like, oh, look at the little squirrel, and I swear, like, Luna and Apollo were like vultures, just circling the tree. Every once in a while, mm -hmm. Apollo would jump at it. Luna sat down and just watched the squirrel jump from branch to branch. And he was little, so you could tell he was still learning how yeah. to like, get his footing. And so he would like carefully jump from branches. And I'm like, oh, please don't let the squirrel fall because I cannot stop them from getting Because me and John started trying it. to get them inside. And Apollo would just like duck around John and like run around yeah. and stuff. And so we saw it because there's like a branch that gets close enough to the neighbor's tree that if most squirrels will jump like that, they'll run away mm -hmm. from the dogs and jump across. Yeah. But he's little and the branches are really little. So I don't think he felt super confident in being able yeah. to get far enough right. to like grip. And so John was like, so me and John were out there and we were waiting and we were kind of in between the dogs and the branch. So just in case the squirrel fell, we might be able to do something or at least slow them down. <laughs> down and be like, whoa, whoa, and, whoa. And he was doing like practice jumps from our tree like to different branches <laughs> in our tree and finally he just went for it and he almost fell but he ended up like getting up and I was like oh thank god because I did not want to have to deal with the dead squirrel no, I know welcome back to State of Murder with Selena Cooper and Amber Ratzloff we haven't said our names in a while, so I figured we should probably do just every, that. It's like if we just continue, like every once in a while, giving ourselves a shout out by saying our names, it'll yeah. be good. Sure. Yeah, because we can't assume that everybody's listening to this, like in chronological order with us from the beginning. Yeah. They'll be shocked if at some random episodes they're like, oh man, these girls are super weird. <laughs> <laughs> like my weird disclosures of things about myself. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, so we're continuing our trek to, I would, is North Dakota the Midwest? Not yeah, there would, yet? Or North, I'm not quite sure. No, I mean, it'll definitely, it's in the midsection because it's yeah. above Nebraska and South Dakota. And those are Midwest states, right? I would say. Okay. But it might be considered the North. I don't know. We never know. I know the West and the East and everything is in the middle. I'm kind of like, uh, and I know the South. <laughs> I feel like our like my education in geography growing up was sorely lacking. Yeah. I mean, I remember learning the capitals, but I just looked it up. So the 12 states 
make up the Midwest are Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, and South Dakota. Oh, and Wisconsin. So we are in officially in the Midwest. In the Midwest. We are starting the Midwest with North Dakota. Yeah. Okay. That's my home stomping grounds, the Midwest. Nice. Yeah, that's where you're from. I have, uh, shockingly, never been to North Dakota. So I, I also have not been to North Dakota. What? We hit another state you haven't been to? Yep, we have. <laughs> We have starting going down. Once we start heading down from North Dakota, I've been to most of those states. Oh. I think I've been to every state otherwise that's considered Midwest, but mm. not North Dakota. I just didn't have. My mom just was telling me when I was I was telling her we were going to record on North Dakota today, mm-hmm. and she told me that she has been. She used to when she was growing up and in high school would go to North Dakota and like hang out. I guess I was. There's not a lot of really cool places to go when you're from the Midwest. It's not like in California where you're like, hey, let's, you know, go. We have like Yosemite National Park right here. Or we can go to the beach or San Francisco or LA LA if you want to, if you so choose. You know, so it's like, there's not really those kind of places. So I guess going to North Dakota and she was like, we went jeeping. (laughs) Jeeping? Is that just driving around in a jeep? Yeah. Yeah, kind of like off-roading in fields, I guess. So real exciting. Thrills a minute. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that was the that was our discussion over dinner tonight. Yeah, North Dakota. North go. Dakota. Have my fake North Dakota accent based off of the movie Fargo. <laughs> yeah, and I was just having Don't my, you like, know? Yeah, I, and see, is that North Dakota? Because I always assume that was like Minnesota because of Bobby's. Where I always just it sounded like a Minnesota accent. Oh, well, Minnesota's right. It's right by North Dakota. So yeah, so I guess it would track that they have the same accent. Yeah. See, I don't think Californians have accents. I don't know. Maybe just because we're because I don't think ours stands out quite as much. There's mm-hmm. a surfer accent, but I don't think that's a Californian accent. No, no. I don't really hear an accent from where we're from. I definitely have one. I have a twang sometimes that like Colorado. I, yes, like Colorado, which is I guess apparently Nebraska. Very much so the way Nebraskans and also some people from Colorado have let me know that they okay. say it the way I do. <laughs> so. okay. Yeah, I just no, it's always Colorado for Colorado. me. Colorado. That just sounds like you're fancy. Oh, it's Colorado. Let me sip my tea with my pinky up. (laughs) All right. You want to tell us your story this week? Sure. Today, I'm going to be sharing with everybody about the Wolf family. Jacob Wolf owned a farmstead a couple miles outside of Turtle Lake, North Dakota. He was known to be very hardworking. His family was pretty well off. They were pretty prosperous and successful in the farming game. And he was also very well liked in the community. It was said that he kept really up to date in farming methods and techniques, which is pretty important even nowadays. I have relatives that are farmers, so keeping up to date and know everything. And what did learning, he farm? Did it say? It didn't. I think that North Dakota is really well known for its wheat. Oh, okay. So maybe that. <laughs> or other things. I mean, I, corn alfalfa, milo, those are all things that grow in the Midwest, soybeans, so take your pick. Jacob was was known to be pretty frugal, and I don't know if this is just a, this community is German-Russian, 
and my family also comes from a German Russian community that are and Mennonites as a whole. I don't know what religious ethnic or ethnicity they like kind of background these this family was, but there's a lot of Mennonites in the Midwest and Mennonites are known kind of as pretty frugal people, oh. kind of tying tying with the Amish and they have some frugal tendencies as well. Mm-hmm. So he was married to Beta and they had six daughters. Bertha was their oldest. She was 13. And then they kind of stair stepped down. There was Maria, Edna, Lydia, Martha, and little baby Emma, who was eight months old mm-hmm. in the year 1920. So this is when all the incident occurs. Turtle Lake was and is still very a very, very small town. So when I was looking, I think there's like 560 people oh my about that live there. When the wolves lived there, there was a little more than that. So probably about 800. Not a huge amount of people. As I've mentioned many times, my family's from Nebraska and my parents are from a very small town in Nebraska. So while I don't really know exactly what it's like to live in Turtle Lake, I can totally imagine it. So every time I visit the town my family's from, like you drive down the street the second a stranger comes into town, everybody knows that they don't belong. (laughs) You get looks. The... There was the cop in the town that my family's from. His name was Milo. He would kind of follow you a little bit, <laughs> like trying to figure out if you belong to who you belong to. Like, there's just a lot of questions. People are nosy. Everybody pretty much knows everything about everybody else in the town. If you got a runny nose or you have a bad day, somebody clear across the town, which probably isn't very far, but still clear across the town would probably know. Yeah. So I'm imagining that Turtle Lake is very much like all small towns in the Midwest that I've ever been to. (laughs) So a neighbor would notice if something was off or something was wrong. That's what happened to John Kraft when on April 24th, 1920, he noticed as he drove by the Wolf Farm that the clothes were still out on the line from the day before. Now this wouldn't necessarily be a big deal except for on that day it was raining and he Mm. knew that Beta would probably have brought the clothes in because you wouldn't want to ruin them. Yeah, why would you leave them in the rain? And I'm sure that he was a really good neighbor. So he went to go investigate what was going on. What he found would shock the entire community and is still talked about in this town to this day. So a hundred years later. So it's been a hundred years. John ended up going towards the farm. He walked into the barn after he heard the pigs kind of rummaging around outside but not in their pen, outside, outside, so kind of just running free. John walked to the barn and noticed that the door was wide open. When he walked into the barn, he found Jacob Wolf covered by dirt and hay and two of Jacob's daughters, Maria and Edna. They had been shot. Mm. Then he went and walked to the house to see about the other members of the family, and he ended up looking into the trap door leading into the cellar, and he saw five more bodies piled up. Oh my God. Yeah, so Jacob then went into the house, went to one of the bedrooms, and that's where he found baby Emma, Jacob's eight-month-old daughter. Mm -hmm. She was alive, but very weak from hunger and prepared to be pretty cold, and so Mm. he gathered her So it was, what, a day late, or a day, their clothes were out for a day or two days? So he noticed the clothes the day before, so, but who knows if he had not driven by. It's not like he drove by. Mm -hmm. He had a farm down the road from them. And so he kind of was just driving down the dirt road. And he noticed them the day before. 
there could have been out for more than that, but they were guessing. So this was on April 24th, and they're thinking that the murders happened that Thursday, which was April 22nd. So they're guessing that the bodies had been there for two days. Baby Emma had been in her crib for two Mm. days by herself. So that's pretty traumatic for a little eight-month-old baby. Especially because babies at that age, they need to eat pretty consistently still. Yeah, and I'm sure she was filthy and, Mm -hmm. oh, just yeah, it's just heartbreaking. John would end up rushing from the wolf farm to Turtle Lake, which was about two and a half miles outside. So they weren't too far away, but still in the 1920s, I don't, cars weren't that great. Yeah. (laughs) And then he ended up calling the sheriff who wasn't located out like Turtle Lake was not his home so it he actually was from Washburn which was about 23 miles from Turtle Lake so that was the nearest police so he ended up calling them when Sheriff Stefrud arrived that evening it took him a while to get to the house he brought three of John Wolfe's neighbors with him Emmanuel Hofer and then the there were two bossarts but they didn't give me the names of those two guys. But there was four of them. They were kind of investigating, looking around. They didn't really move the bodies at that time because it was nighttime. And they wanted to get as much evidence as they could. So they were kind of waiting around for the next day. The sheriff, he began investigating, but he was totally at a loss for who could have committed these murders. I mean, if you think it's a really small town. So it's like, you know... Well, he probably doesn't know all of them because he's not from that town, but the neighbors for sure did. And they were probably at a loss too on what happened. John, Maria, Edna, Beta, Lydia, Bertha. And then there was also a 13-year-old farmhand named Jacob Hofer, but they all called him Jake, had all been shot. And then Martha, she was three years old, had been killed with a hatchet. So there's two different types of killing. I can't think of the word. MOs basically. Yeah, MOs. Yeah. So after How weird saying, that it would they would do such a I don't know, seemingly such a personal way to murder somebody with yeah. for the littlest one. Yeah. Right. Well, not the littlest littlest, but she was yeah, probably she next, didn't die. Yeah. She so was, she the, was next the next one. Yeah. The littlest one didn't die. We'll we'll find out speculation okay. on why in a little bit, but this is just what they came into. After they were done checking the bodies and seeing who was where, it was about five in the morning. And so they decided to drive to Hofer, Emmanuel Hofer's house to pick up something to eat, to get some breakfast. And then they were going to bring it back for the sheriff. So they took off. And 30 minutes later, the sheriff heard a car drive up. And so he went out to see who was coming because he knew it was there wasn't enough time between that and his guys to return. So Mm -hmm. he went and he sees a guy getting out of his car and he starts walking suspiciously around and he walks up to the wolf home and looks into the windows and then he starts walking towards the barn and that's when the sheriff was like, hey, and called out to him and introduced Mm -hmm. himself. And the man introduced himself back and said that he was Jacob's neighbor, Henry Layer. The sheriff was immediately suspicious of Lair and stuck around talking to him because the sheriff was thinking that maybe somebody that possibly the killer could return to the scene Mm -hmm. of the crime. And so he just kind of like, what's going on? The sheriff remembered that after Hofer returned, Lair became super into the investigation. And so he started walking around with them 
and he would point out like really obvious things and then make suggest like weird suggestions and everybody's kind of like what is this guy doing okay yeah. and sheriff noticed that he kept his right hand in his pocket the entire time like he never took his hand out of his pocket the entire time he was there and so he kind of thought that was strange yeah so weird when the sun finally rose, Blair suggested to everyone that they should go into the barn and look to see if the hens had laid any eggs. <laughs> so I'm, I don't know why that would be important. Yeah, so, why would that matter? I don't know. So one of the Boss Heart men ended up going in with him and Blair kind of pointed out and was like, oh, there's some eggs over there. And so Boss Heart was like, okay. And he goes to go pick them up. And as soon as he turns to go pick him up, Lair shouts, Ho! See what I found here under the hay? Shotgun shells! He then, when Bossart turned around, he saw him kind of rustling around in the hay and then came up with a handful of shells. <laughs> so, okay. I know, your face is like very skeptical. I also was when I was reading this. I was like, what? Yeah, so, I'm like, that just seems like, oh, look over there. And then he dropped <laughs> shotgun shells in a spot. Look what I found! Yeah, yeah like, exactly. That's what it seems like. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So Bossart and Laird walk out of the barn to go show the sheriff what they had found. And the sheriff was even more suspicious because they had already searched all of the hay. So they called it turning the hay over. So they had already looked and the previous night to see if there was anything there. And nobody had found anything exactly where he had looked. Mm -hmm. So... He was like, oh, okay, this guy, so his alarm bells were going off, but there was still not enough. I mean, just because a guy seems to be weird, there wasn't enough to convict him of the murders or even prove that he committed them or had anything yeah. to do with it. So there's just so, so little to go on. Mm -hmm. By noon the next day, a whole bunch of crowds started showing up and gathering at the farm. The police from Bismarck, so we were talking about last week, so Bismarck is the capital of North Dakota. <laughs> so they even sent their chief of police to help with the investigation, and they ran down like lead after lead, and nothing was successful. They were checking everybody's alibis to see like, if anybody couldn't account for their time, and they didn't come up with anything. Mm -hmm. uh, the town was so on edge that they formed a posse to do their own investigations, Wow. And they ended up finding this guy, like this young, it said youth, it didn't give much specifics in the mm -hmm. readings I read, but so they found this young, this young guy, I'm guessing probably some teenager, he was wandering around the lake, and they decided to kind of hog tie him up, because <laughs> they okay. just assumed, and I'm guessing he was a stranger, because I told you, small towns, everybody knows everybody, wow. and if they don't know you, you're gonna probably be a suspect, because they're like, no, nobody in our town could do this. So who's yeah. like, stranger around here? Oh, there's that weird guy. So they grabbed him and tied him up and he wasn't freed until the sheriff came and was like, was like, no, I don't think he did it. And like untied him. And there was no evidence that he had yeah. anything to do with it. The that guy only, probably never came back to that. Oh, I know. They're like, he's probably like, screw turtle away. Yeah, I'm out. So the only evidence that anybody found was they actually did find the shotgun. So the murder weapon. Okay. It was found in a shallow lake that, and so it was so shallow that the part of the gun was like, I'm guessing the whole, what do you call the? Barrel? No, the other part, <laughs> because it gets your shoulder. Your guess is bad. Handle? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the thing I is that say. you put up against your arm. <laughs> so that part We should really learn more about guns. 
guns. I know if we're going to talk about true crime and like we have guns almost every single week we have to talk about and I know so much of nothing. So whatever that thing was called was sticking up out of the water and so they went and got it but they couldn't figure out who it belonged to. They even checked with the manufacturer to see if they had any record of the gun and they didn't. So that evidence, even though they suspected it was probably the gun that shot everybody, it didn't lead them to anywhere either. I figured out. It's called the butt of the gun? The butt! The butt of the gun! <laughs> the butt of the gun. So I, th- the, I think the butt of the gun was sticking up out of the water. So okay. thank you. You're people welcome. are probably like, these ding-dongs. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we don't... We don't mess with guns. That's no, we don't. No, thank you. Personality. That's not what we nope. do. Yeah. But always in the back of the mind for the sheriff was Lair. One townsman recalled Jacob Wolf sharing that there was friction between him and one of his neighbors. He didn't have a name, but he recalled that Jacob came up to him previously and shared that he was concerned that a vengeful neighbor might do him harm. So a lot yeah. of people were suspecting Lair because there had been some trouble. And so the story went that Lair had some livestock that broke free from his property and got onto Jacob's land, which resulted in Jacob's dog biting one of Lair's cows. Huh. So, so he got okay, upset so, because the dog bit a cow? Yeah. Did it so, cow? Did it just bite I don't cow? think so. I think it just bit it and it injured the cow. And I mean, that's just probably his way he's making money. So that, I mean, I could yeah. see. But it's also... The cow is on the wolf property, so get a hold of your livestock, buddy. (laughs) They can't just free range this. Yeah, freaking fix your fences (laughs) or whatever was wrong with them. So it was also known that Lair was kind of a gossip, and he liked to talk about Jacob's private life. It did not go into specifics about that private life or what he could be possibly gossiping about, but it was just known in town that Lair liked to talk about Jacob and his private life. But still, of course, this, like, just because some guy gossips and is mad because his cow got bitten by a dog, they still didn't have enough evidence on anything to bring Lair in. So they just decided to watch him and see what happened. Lair's odd behavior would continue. On April 28th, 1920, over 2,500 people gathered at the Wolf Farmhouse for their funeral. So there were eight coffins were lined up in a row and Laird attended the funeral. And he seemed pretty grief stricken. He asked for each of the coffin lids to be lifted so that he could look once again upon the faces of his neighbors. He went to each of their coffins and looked at them. Uh, okay, I'm pretty sure back then, the whole mortician process Probably oh, wasn't as intricate, and they were all shot with shotguns. Did it say where they were shot? Where they uh-uh. shot? It? it did. It didn't. Either way, though, that's not a sight you want to see. Yeah. Though I yeah. would imagine, yeah, not I, ideal. Yeah, it, that was, I. Everybody there thought it was really, really strange. Yeah, so everyone thought it was odd. It was very much noted upon amongst the community that he was kind of behaving weirdly. Yeah. So while the funeral was going on some of the investigators decided to go to the Lair's farm. When they got there, they ended up questioning one of his daughters, who did share with them that one morning the week prior, Lair had been gone from the farm, 
but she doesn't remember which day and at what time he was gone. She just remembers that he wasn't around. Yeah. So that still wasn't really enough to go on, but two weeks passed and still nobody had been arrested for the murder and pressure was totally mounting for the police to make an arrest. They even raised $10,000 for a reward. So this town, this small town of 800 plus people raised $10,000, which in 1920, I did not look at the conversion rates, but I'm sure it was a shit ton of money. Yeah, that's a crazy amount for, but I mean, even too, for the whole town to raise that kind of money is incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe some, probably some outs, because there were 2,500 people. I don't know where all these people came from, but that w- attended the funeral. So maybe they each gave a couple bucks. I yeah. don't know. The equivalent in purchasing power now is about 128,000. Okay, so there we go. That's a lot of money. Money, yeah, in like a, a week's time. I know. People are going into like life savings and yeah, everything like, at that point. Yeah, that, yeah in that couple of weeks. So Especially because they're mostly farmers, right? Yeah. So, but some farmers do really well. So, and it sounded like the Wolf family was pretty prosperous. So oh, maybe okay. that community as a whole was pretty well off at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, this was before the great depression so yeah on may 13th 1920 almost three weeks after the murder lair was actually brought in by the police after they decided that they had enough circumstantial evidence to convict him lair maintained his innocence so after they brought him in he just kept saying over and over again he didn't do it he was innocent the investigators actually didn't question him the night they brought him in they waited until the next morning and then they relentlessly, it says, relentlessly examined, like didn't examine if you like examined him. Like, and I'm guess you know, we've had a lot of stories where we talk about like really long interrogations and like mm-hmm. kind of brow beating and like just, I'm guessing. Yeah. That- and then at, at what point is it just because they're done and they're tired that they mm-hmm. say whatever you want them to say versus the truth? Yeah. So hours upon hours on end of them just continually asking him why he killed the wolf family why didn't he confess they knew he killed them and just over and over and over again repeating that and mm-hmm. they just kept saying no i didn't do it i didn't do it so finally after hours of the interview they decided that they were going to take the crime scene photos and show them all to him and apparently the crime scene photos are very gruesome yeah. i didn't see any i you can on the websites i'll be linking there's a lot of pictures of the house after the bodies are removed and you can see a lot of, I mean, they're black and white, but you can see a lot of what I'm assuming are blood stains and stuff. So. Yeah. And shotguns aren't like no, I'm sure, sure easily not. hidden wounds. Those are big no. glasses of a gun, especially for the 1920s. I'm sure it was very rough. Yeah. So after he had viewed the photos, he finally broke down and confessed. And this is what his confession said. So he said, he walked to the wolf farm, walked into the wolf house, demanding damages for the injury done to, he said, to my cow by a wolf's dog. Then wolf ordered him, so wolf is Jacob. Wolf ordered Lair to leave, and when he didn't, wolf ended up getting out his shotgun, loading two shells, and Lair ended up kind of, they kind of fought over the shotgun, and at that time, apparently, the gun went off, killing Beta, his wife, and the farm, the 13-year-old farmhand, both got shot at that time. 
-hmm. Wolf apparently then fled towards the barn and Lair reached into the dresser and took out more shotgun shells. And then he followed after Wolf and ended up shooting him twice. After that, he saw Maria and Edna. They're the middle-aged kids. They were like Mm -hmm. seven and nine. They fled to the barn. He ended up following them both and shooting them. He then returned to the house and shot Bertha and Lydia. And then he ended up killing Martha with the hatchet. So it doesn't say why he decided to kill Martha with the hatchet. Maybe he was out of ammunition. I'm not quite sure. He stated... Oh, go ahead. I don't know. That just seems so excessive. Like, she's three. Just leave it at that. Okay, I ran out of bullets. I guess she gets to live now. Cause yeah, because how much is she three years old, it's not like she's going to really be able to tell too much or see, mm-hmm. like, depending, too, on what she saw. I mean, yeah. yeah. He stated the reason why he didn't kill baby Emma was that he didn't know to go into that room and look for her. He just didn't know where she was, so... He didn't kill her. Yeah. Lair swears that the first two killings, so Beta and the farmhand Jake, Mm -hmm. were completely by accident. And then he went into a haze and didn't remember for days afterward really what had occurred. Lair pled guilty and got sentenced to life in prison with hard labor. And it only took 48 hours after his uh, arrest for him to be sentenced. Okay. That's some quick turnaround. Yeah. Like, but also, too, done. like, if it's the jury or whatever, is that town, yeah. they had all... Just... Oh, yeah. No, he didn't have a jury. He just went up to the judge and was like, oh, I'm okay. guilty. The judge even was like, are you sure you want to put in a plea of guilty? You don't want to do not guilty? And he was like, no, I just want this over with. He was kind of wanting to protect his family. It's mm. a small community. He was really concerned yeah. about his wife and children and what would happen to them. So he just was like, I want it over as quickly as possible. Yeah. After he got to prison, Lair recanted his confession, stating that he had been beaten and threatened, that the police would turn him over to an angry mob if he didn't confess. He swore that he was innocent and that it was somebody else who had done it. However, he died five years into his prison sentence, so nobody really looked into it. There are people, there are people who speculate a lot that he didn't do it because they just don't think one person alone could have managed to kill eight people the way he did without somebody getting away or something. And especially because like in the group, the oldest daughter was in the second group with Martha, the one who was killed with the hatchet. So there could have been some time. It just, there's some questions on how it could have occurred. Yeah. That's a lot of people to shoot and have to reload because what shotguns can only shoot like two two shots. And yeah. so you'd have to reload constantly and mm-hmm. I don't know, but then I guess it, yeah. And if they didn't find any evidence out well, like on the grounds that they yeah. tried to run away or something. And it's not like they had forensics like we have now. Yeah. So I don't even know if they could, you know, see if the like, I don't know if they found bullet or I don't know. I don't really, yet again, I don't know much about shotguns and how they fire, but like, how can you tell if it came from that exact gun back then? You know, it's not yeah. like nowadays. So it's, there's just a lot of questions. People have a lot of questions on, well, if he did it, maybe somebody helped him or who knows. Yeah. And then too, it's interesting that they go from a gun, which is kind of more of a detached way to kill someone, I would think, because you're just mm-hmm. shooting from somewhat of a distance versus a hatchet is very personal. Yeah. 
and kill, so like for a, a little one to get attacked yeah. like that yeah but she was probably the easy like sadly the easiest one to kill with the hatchet i'm guessing just because she i don't know she because she's younger and i think a little easier to control i don't know but yeah maybe but again just i don't know just to have that kind of thought in your head of, i'm so mad right now that I'm even going to take it out on the three-year-old mm-hmm. who probably has just been hiding this whole time, like trying to hide every chance yeah. she can. Yeah. So the Wolf family was all buried together in one large grave site with one headstone that reads, and I think it's in German, I'm not quite sure, but it's Die Immordate Familie, which translates to the murdered family. So that's, you know, how normally you have a headstone that says, which say like, wolf you know jacob and beta it doesn't it says the murdered family so they're known as the murdered signed family. off on that why would you want to remember <laughs> them that way i don't know i thought it was pretty not even true. to put their names so their names are like really small on the bottom but <laughs> yeah it seems very odd to me the headstone's not very big but it's this hmm. case is very very well known in north dakota so I don't okay. think it's a well-known case outside of North Dakota. I'd never heard of it, but like in North Dakota, apparently this is a very well-known talked about case just because it's the largest mass killing in mm-hmm. North Dakota history. Wow. So that's the story of the Wolf family. Oh, and baby Emma, she ended up going and living with an aunt and uncle and she lived, she actually died in 2003, I think at the age of 84. She wow. lived a long life. It was hard for her because she also was still lived in that small community. And, you know, growing up as the daughter of this murdered family that survived, a lot of kids kind of picked on her and made fun of her. I know. (laughs) Kids are the worst. Her whole family got murdered. What do you possibly have to make fun of her for? Yeah, I read that in an article that was written that they interviewed one of her grandkids. Mm-hmm. And so they were talking about that. And I was just like, kids are such assholes. It is yeah. definitely not little baby Emma's fault or she had no choice in the matter. Yeah. And, but I could see little, I could see kids being like, you don't have a family. Your family was murdered. I get to see kids being mean like that. Yeah. But she did live a, a good long life and got married and. Yeah, it sounds like she had kids, grandkids. Yep. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So Emma Wolf lived a long life. All right. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. So my story this week is an interesting one. So it's a little different than what we usually do. It's still true crime and there's still a murder that took place, but it all explain. It's just a little different. So my story is about Andrew Sadek. So Andrew Sadek was born on November 22nd, 1993 in Valley City, North Dakota. He was a shy, quiet child who was described as being very kind and very friendly when you got to know him. Like he's a happy-go-lucky kid as he grew up. In 2005, Andrew tragically lost his older brother Nicholas in an accident when a train hit the truck he was riding in. It was his brother and a friend were in there and a train hit his car, which was understandably very traumatic for the family to lose their oldest son. 
Andrew went on to graduate high school and started attending North Dakota State College of Science in, I'm for sure probably going to pronounce this wrong, Wapeton? Wapeton? W-A-H-P-E-T-O-N. I have no idea. I'm going to say Wapeton. Wapeton? Wapeton? That sounds right. And he was training, he was studying to become an electrical technician or an electrician, basically. Spring of 2013, Andrew started sell, to sell marijuana at school. And this was, he was a second year student. So he started to sell small quantities. On two occasions, Andrew made the mistake of selling to a confidential informant. For this, <laughs> yeah. Oh, for this. shit. Southeast Multi-County Agency, or SEMCA. I'm, gonna, I'm not saying that every time, so it's just going to be SEMCA. SEMCA is a tax force working on drug enforcement across three different counties in North Dakota, including the one that the campus was on. The first occasion, Andrew sold the informant an eighth, which for anyone who doesn't know, that's a rel- it's the typical unit for selling. You typically buy an eighth, or when people are selling, it's 3.5 grams, mm-hmm. which is about like, what? two or three blunts were like the small mm. amount. And on the second occasion, he sold a gram, which is even smaller of an amount. So it's like a joint or two, maybe. So very small amount. So altogether, they said the total was about 80 bucks. So 60 bucks for the eighth and 20 bucks for the gram. Mm-hmm. But no matter how small the amount of whatever drug it is that you're selling, uh, if you do it on a college campus, that counts as a class A felony. And I'm oh, not sure shit. if that's every state or if it's just North Dakota. I didn't, I should have looked that up, but <laughs> it's for sure a felony because you're for something, some reason, just something about being on the college campus makes it a much bigger felony or a much oh, bigger charge. Very true. Yeah. Okay. So in November of 2013, agents with Semca searched Andrew's dorm room and they found a grinder, which is something that tears up the flower. Mm-hmm with marijuana residue on it. So agents then informed him that he was facing more than 40 years behind bars and fines that could be up to $40,000. So it's basically 20 each for each felony. So 20 years, $20,000 for each time he sold to that informant, which is a crazy amount. Yeah, that is ridiculous. For such a small amount of That is such bullshit. Yeah. We'll talk about laws later on. (laughs) I have issues with these things. Andrew didn't want to risk his future, so the agents offered another option for him to become an undercover informant. The charges would still be there, but they pretty much told me likely that they'd be reduced to misdemeanors, so much less time and maybe a small fine if he participated in this. Andrew was told to wear a wire and go after both low-level dealers on campus, but also into some neighboring cities to help catch high-level dealers as well. Over the next three months, Andrew made three buys on campus from other dealers. On the weekend of April 25th, Andrew returned home to visit with his parents. He tended to his cattle herd there because his parents lived on a farm in Valley Mm -hmm. City. And Valley City isn't super far from where he's at, maybe like an hour-ish, hour and 30 minutes or so. They're not super far Mm -hmm. away. He was talking to his parents about his plans for the future. He had started interviewing for work as an electrician in various cities in North Dakota. They mentioned, I believe, Bismarck and other cities nearby that he was looking for work. Because apparently things are pretty close, I think, in North Dakota. Like, 
different cities and stuff. So it's not uncommon to move around like that. And he was graduating soon because this program to be an electrician was only a two-year program. So he was pretty much done within the next few weeks. And he even shared with his parents that he had started dating a new girlfriend and they had made some plans for the upcoming weeks. So with graduation coming up and things like that. So when Andrew arrived back to campus the next night, he called his mom and they talked about just typical things you talk about with your parents. I made it home safe. They ended up uh, talking about their shared data plan because they're on the family plan and it was almost at its monthly limit. So we were talking about okay. that. <laughs> and so the next few days, he was tasked with making two more buys for Semka. And the deal that they had with Semka is he wasn't allowed to tell anybody because you really can't tell anybody you're an informant. Otherwise, yeah. you never know who they could tell and things like that. So he didn't tell, his parents had no idea None of his friends, his roommates, his girlfriend, nobody knew he was working with them. He had to make two more buys for them when suddenly the task force stopped hearing from him. On April 30th, Andrew went out with his roommate and some friends. They ended up returning to the dorm late, watched a movie, and then headed off to sleep. On May 1st, so the next morning at 2 a.m., Andrew was caught on camera walking out of his residence hall by himself wearing a Tampa Bay Buccaneers football hoodie and carrying a black backpack. This would be the last time that anybody ever saw him alive. And it wasn't even like anyone else saw him. It was just the camera. Yeah. When his roommate Drew Kugel woke up and found Andrew gone, he assumed that he had gone to see his girlfriend. It wasn't until the afternoon when Andrew wasn't spotted in any of his classes, he never returned back to the dorm, that his roommate and some other friends reported him missing. On May 5th, a warrant was issued for the drug charges with Semka, hoping that this would motivate him to return. Because remember, they haven't heard from him. They yeah. never said whether they knew he was missing or they knew the reports were filed for him missing. But all of this was happening pretty close together because you would think what by May 2nd or 3rd he was reported missing by May 5th mm-hmm. they were like nope we're issuing warrants so hopefully he'll come back his parents pleaded on the local news stations for anyone that would listen for Andrew to come home safe they even tried to and it was so heartbreaking I got to see a news clip of it listening to them talk to about how badly they wanted him home and that he could come home and just tend to the cattle and they would all hang out together and it would be all great and you could just hear the heartbreak in his parents voice because remember they lost their other son this is the only son they had left the only child they had left on june 27th so now we're about like a month almost two months later andrew sadik's body was found in the red river which is just a mile north of like breckenridge minnesota and i looked it's very close to where the campus is i like where his campus was is only maybe like five-ish minutes from the border of Minnesota and this Red River runs through them. So he was five minutes away. Dental records were used to identify him. And when his body was found, there was no wallet and Andrew was no longer wearing the Tampa Bay sweatshirt that he was wearing initially. Instead, he was wearing a jacket that his family didn't recognize as anything that he owned. Mm. He had a 22 caliber bullet lodged in his head, which was determined to be the cause of death. There were no drugs and alcohol in his system. So investigators initially just decided that he had committed suicide. He didn't want to be an informant anymore. So he must have thought, okay, this is how I get out of it. 
They also found rocks in his backpack, which was tied to him. So you know how you have the little backpack straps that was hooked to him? And so they were like, oh, he did that so he would make sure that he'd stay in the lake so he would be weighed down. Which seems – we'll talk about it. But that seems kind of weird to me that if you're going to shoot yourself, why would you want to weigh yourself down? Like it doesn't seem to click, Mm -hmm. but we'll get back to it. During the investigation, Andrew's parents were surprised to find out that Andrew was involved in SEMCA or any of this stuff. Because as the investigation started, they basically told him he was an informant and he was doing this and all of these things. And they had no idea about any of it. They didn't even know he was selling pot at school and that he had been caught. Because only the task force knew about his activities selling at the school, not the school itself. So the policy the school has in place to notify parents when students violate the drug and alcohol rules was not enforced. Yeah. Which seems odd to me that police would, or the agents would search his dorm room, yet the school had no idea. Yeah, that is Or why that was even allowed to have no idea. That sounds more like a loophole than anything. Like, Like, well, we didn't catch him, so we don't have to tell, but I don't know. Yeah, you would think they would be more on top of things if they... Like, I just think of my, the college I went to, which is well, probably a lot smaller than the college he went to, but if police were on campus for anything, everybody would know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe they tried to be inconspicuous because they don't want anyone to know they're going to offer him the confidential informant yeah. deal. I have no idea. So Andrew was only a few weeks away from graduating his two-year program, and his parents found it very hard to believe that their son would take his own life. He had plans for the weekend after his disappearance and showed nothing that would suggest he was depressed or even having suicidal thoughts. And this was true as far as everybody was concerned, his roommate, his girlfriend, his friends, not a single one of them ever got the hint of it, which can sometimes happen, but especially the making plans part and the starting the new relationship part Mm -hmm. kind of tips me away from believing he was depressed as well, because Generally, when people are planning on committing suicide, they stop making any plans for the future. They don't really engage in new relationships because they know there's no point in that. They're not planning to live longer than that. So since this would be the second son they lost to tragedy, the Sadics put all of their time and energy into figuring out what happened to Andrew. Andrew's autopsy could not determine if the death was suicide or murder because the gun was never found. Mm-hmm. Even with dive teams searching the river multiple times, they were never able to find it. Tammy, Andrew's mother, argued that after the police found Andrew's car, which I'm assuming was still on campus, it never really said where they found his car. It doesn't seem like it was by the lake at all. It was back at campus. The police promised her they would search the river as soon as it went down from its flood stage. Because I guess in April, floods are really mm-hmm. common in that river. So they needed it to wait, which should have been maybe like the next month or so it should have gone down she claimed that they never they never searched the river and it wasn't until the dive team was conducting training exercises a month after the water had receded that they found him so she was basically saying it was just a fluke that they found his body in the river. Oh, okay and i looked it up because i was thinking i don't know for some reason and <laughs> the california in me sometimes when i think of rivers i think of more like creeks like I don't see them as being that deep but rivers can be very deep oh yeah definitely they can be super deep and for some reason in my mind I was like oh they just found him near the river but no they found him in the river 
So it was, she was saying that the dive team was conducting training exercises and that's how they found them. But again, of course, law enforcement is saying that's not the case. There was no note left behind. And those closest, like I said, to Andrew never really seemed there would be any reason for this. He never said anything or was acting any differently than he normally did. And in the beginning, I said he was a very happy-go-lucky guy. He was excited for the future. He was excited to start working after he was done with this two-year program. And so none of them, with no note, it doesn't seem plausible to anybody he knew. So Tammy also said in another interview that she was upset when his school, NDCSCS, I'm just going to say that, come on, I repeat the whole thing. It's very long when your state has two <laughs> words. <Yeah. in> <laughs> Campus police who were supposed to be investigating, she was upset that they had just brushed it off as a suicide and didn't seriously look into the possibility of a homicide because his parents are thinking he was working as an informant, which is yeah. very dangerous work this for sure could have been a homicide. So she was upset that the campus police were kind of not really, because they were in charge of investigating stuff. And I'm assuming because he was selling on campus or things might, he was last seen leaving campus. But the family did end up informing investigators that a 22 caliber pistol was missing from the family home. But the other evidence didn't sit well with them for a suicide. And again, because the gun was never found, There's no way to say that it was that gun or even if it was that gun, because he was in the river, there's no gunshot residue. Who's to say he didn't bring the gun to protect himself and someone took it or used it to kill him. So I wonder also like with the autopsy, just how the bullet went into the head and is it possible for him to have done it? Because, you know, there's very certain yeah trajectories that a bullet would go i'm assuming because they couldn't determine between either so they didn't say one or the other because they couldn't make the determination without the Mm -hmm. weapon or i don't know even if they had the weapon if that would have helped but it must have been in a way that both he could have done it and someone else somebody else okay because again if he's found in the river all of the evidence is pretty much washed off of him. Even if they did, even if the gun's in the river, there's no way to know. It makes me a little suspicious. I mean, I guess he was in the river, so it's easy that the gun could have gotten out of his hand or he could have dropped mm-hmm. it or something like that. Or if he, like, if he was killed on the bank of the river and then the floodwaters came, it could have been washed away. Washed away. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of reasons for that. But also, too, the fact that he didn't even know he was super close. He never said anything to investigators about not wanting to do this anymore. Cause it sounds like he stopped contacting them or like that they noticed he stopped contacting them after he had already been missing. So there's nothing that says he was ditching them and yeah. then missing. It seemed like he was probably still doing what they were, he was supposed to be doing and went missing in the course of that. Yeah. Although it would be hard to be an informant. Like I could, I would feel so terrible of putting somebody in a situation that I myself had been in. Mm-hmm. I would feel horrid. Yeah. The Sadiks had a bunch of questions. Why would Andrew's wallet be missing? Why was he wearing different clothes that didn't belong to him? And why would he try to weigh himself down? That seems like such overkill for a suicide to want to... So the method wasn't drowning. He was shot. Mm-hmm. So why would be the importance of putting rocks in his backpack to sink himself? Same thing too. Why would he... Someone would take a wallet if they didn't want a body to be identified. 
Yeah. So that seems highly unlikely. Because again, there was nothing that said why he would care if anybody identified him, especially if he was just trying to get out of the life. Why would he want them thinking he was missing versus just knowing that he's gone, you know? Mm-hmm. Also to the jacket thing is weird. Why would he have changed clothes? Because in the video, there's nothing to suggest he had that jacket on him and the sweatshirt wasn't found in the backpack or anywhere. So why would he have different clothes on? Yeah, and whose jacket is it? Mm-hmm. When the Sadex brought Andrew's car home after his initial disappearance, they noticed that the carpeting inside was wet. It doesn't tell me how long, I would assume the day or two, which is why I was thinking the car was left on campus when it was found. They also noticed that there was water in the spare tire well. So they believe that someone murdered Andrew, put him in the trunk of the car, dumped his body in the river, so kind of backed up into it, which could have gotten the water in there, and then returned the car to campus so nobody would think they didn't. Tammy claims that someone told her they saw three people cleaning a car similar to her son's the night he went missing, but I couldn't find that anywhere else other than the Wikipedia article because the news article it came from is no longer an active link, so I couldn't Mm -hmm. look up where she said, and nobody else mentions it in any other articles. Also, too, it did mention that the cameras facing the parking lot were not functioning that night. So there's of no course video. they weren't. Yeah. So there's <laughs> That's nothing. historically known for like any true person that listens to true crime stories that the yeah. cameras, the surveillance cameras are never working or they're mm-hmm. too blurry to like actually show you anything. Mm-hmm. Or the person knows they're there. So they're hiding the whole hiding. time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's not, like I said, there wasn't anything really refuting that or confirming that. It was just something that Tammy had mentioned because they were very active in the media, his parents, trying to get justice for their son. Yeah. So December 2015, the show 60 Minutes did a segment on the case and told of another case similar to Andrew's. So another student had been caught, and I believe this student was from Mississippi, with small amounts of marijuana and asked to buy from multiple other dealers. They told him he had to get 10, and he was like, I don't even know 10 other dealers. And they're like, well, you have to do it. When he couldn't, he was arrested and charged, and he was sent for the initial, his selling. He was charged with two years probation and an $800 fine, which is significantly less than the 20 yeah. years and 20000 per charge that Andrew was threatened with. Also in the special was highlighted the case of Rachel Hoffman, which was also tied to another article I read about this case. Rachel was used as an informant in Florida, I believe somewhere near Tallahassee, in 2008. She was originally caught with five ounces of pop, a few Valiums, and ecstasy pills. But as an informant, so then they offered her basically the same thing. We'll reduce your charges. You just have to be an informant for us. As an informant, she was asked to buy 1,500 pills, an ounce and a half of cocaine, and a gun, which is unbelievable to me that you're sending a young woman who is not a trained police officer to buy such a significant amount. This is more than just like, oh, can I score a little bit of weed or I guess Mm -hmm. even a little bit, but to me, cocaine, like you're jumping from what you were originally selling at that point. Police lost Rachel during the buy. They couldn't hear her and they didn't have communication with her during the buy and found her two days later in a ditch shot multiple times. Oh, jeez. Hearing about a lot of these stories sparked a lot of concern about police using informants and tying these young kids who, again, whole futures ahead of them. They're selling drugs for whatever reason, probably a multitude of reasons. Yeah, it's not the smartest choice, 
but that doesn't mean that you get the right to make them an informant in a very dangerous situation by blackmailing them with their potential like yeah charges so in 2017 andrew's law was passed in north dakota and put it in it put into place new protections for criminal informants that included requiring law enforcement to notify informants of their right to speak to an attorney who could have told them that they probably have a better shot in court of getting a very minimal sentence. Sentence. Andrew never really got in trouble. He probably would have gotten just some probation, a fine, yeah, on the wrist, you're done. Yeah, especially because everything he did was such minimal. Like, that was just, like, the most tiny little min amounts. And then all they found in his room was a grinder. <laughs> like, yeah, not, with residue. Not even it. an actual plant. Yes. So that's just, like, paraphernalia. Get out of here. Yeah. The Andrews Law in North Dakota was modeled after Rachel's Law, which was a statute put in Florida after Rachel Hoffman was killed. So last December, the statics took their belief that Andrew's undercover work had contributed to his death to the North Dakota Supreme Court because when they had tried to go to the district court, a judge had chosen to dismiss the case the previous May. So this just happened the past December. So the last thing that took place was December 19th. There's still, the case is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming because of the whole coronavirus thing, things are kind of on hold right now as far as what I don't know what North Dakota is doing as far as quarantining or things like that but I would assume it would put some things on hold for them there yeah so it's just and I wanted to bring up those last two stories because I think it is very important to highlight that the injustices of the law enforcement community in this situation in all three of those situations because it sounds like it's happening across multiple states because Florida Mississippi and North Dakota are not like neighboring states to each other yeah and so you have to think why aren't these protections in place the police can't just use criminals to and even to I even hate to call them criminals because yeah these are smaller charges I mean even in Rachel's case I mean yes that's a lot quite a lot to have but it's not like she had a whole grow house and was yeah running this whole operation so to blackmail them in that way and say we're going to use you as an informant and we're going to do this and then we'll get your charges reduced seems very wrong and I don't know it just seems really shady and so no totally it totally does and I just think of like young kids because they're still very young because I'm getting and you you either have to you have to be they have to know that you can be a good actor you would be able to read that I was up to something in about 1.2 seconds because I have the most expressive shit's hat going down face that you would ever have and I'm just like I could there is no way in hell I would have been able to do that my sophomore year of college and be like okay yeah let me become an informant and go sell to people or buy from people or whatever but just Mm -hmm. absolutely not they're they're not trained it's not safe let the policemen do their work and do go undercover Yeah. And even too, in Andrew's situation, it didn't sound like the police knew the exact dates he was doing. In one article that I read, I forgot to mention it in my main story, but the date that he went missing was the last day he had. So they were giving him deadlines. Like you have until this day to make these buys. And so the day he went missing at May 1st was the deadline to get those other two buys taken care of, which is where they think he might've been going at 2 AM to just get it out of the way. And so they weren't even there as protection. So they didn't know where he was going. They didn't know when he was going. There was no car there that was going to take him and drop him off or 
be there surveilling in that moment. They were just using him as a guinea pig of like, hey, go catch this guy for us and we'll take care of the rest when it doesn't seem very fair or again, safe for Andrew in that situation. Well, and, and then also even assume, I, again, I'm from the Midwest and like to get pot back in those days, wasn't like it was a guarantee. So yeah, it was just, it shocked me that the law enforcement agency was using them in this way. And I was glad to hear that some laws were being passed in states to protect those informants. Because even if they are criminal or career criminals and informants of that nature, they still have rights as people. And you can't just use them whenever you feel like it. And it's very irresponsible, in my opinion, to use them with, again, kids with no yeah. training whatsoever into very dangerous situations Situa- at some point. Well, in situations like- that doesn't sound like the police even knew what they were going into or walking into. They're like, you go find. It's not that they were like, hey, do you know this guy? Can you buy from him or mm-hmm. whatever? Let's, you know, set you up, I'm guessing. But you know, yeah, that just, that boggles my mind and it's totally an abuse of power. Yeah, and they would, the case for the district court was because they were saying that he was never told that he has the right to an attorney. Cause I don't know if he was like officially arrested. So I don't know if he could have, if they read him his Miranda rights or if they were just like, Hey, we're just talking, here's your deal or yeah. we could arrest you. And this is the path. So it kind of seems like they used a loophole of you're not arrested. So we don't have to Mirandize you. So that way they didn't have to let him know that he does have a right to an attorney in that situation. And an attorney would have advised him, to not take that that (laughs) shitty ass deal and they would have he would have been i i can pretty confidently assume he would have gotten a way lesser charge than that being a first-time offender with no prior like he's a good kid he sold a very small amount and even so that's the only event there was nothing that suggested he was gonna sell any more in his apartment in his dorm room or anything like that so why would a judge have convicted him of 40 years? Yeah. And if a judge did convict him of 40 years, there's something fucking wrong with that judge. Like that is yeah. the most ridiculous sentence ever. Mm-hmm. Yet again, yeah. people who get, rape other people or like physically harm people in other ways don't even get 40 years. Yeah. And the Sadics have no children living anymore. And they're continuing to fight for justice and try to get them to realize that their son was murdered. And even if he did commit suicide, it was the amount of pressure that was put on him Absolutely. unnecessarily as an informant. And yeah. it's heartbreaking to think that that family had to go through so much tragedy and something that was the second tragedy seems completely avoidable if the law had not decided that they wanted to use him as an informant. And it goes into as well my issues with the mar the not all drug laws but specifically mm-hmm. with marijuana in a lot of different states the law is not just in these situations people no. with drug charges are getting huge huge sentences for something very minor and especially yeah. too now that it's becoming more legal in places it's legal to do this, yet you're still tacking on such high charges for very, very minor infractions, or even too, like considering these things felonies, mm-hmm. when it's, he wasn't selling to children, he wasn't selling to 
or he wasn't selling large quantities of it. Doesn't sound like he was some high level of drug dealer. No. There's no reason for that sort of thing. And again, it just kind of gets me off on a side tangent about the incarceration rate due to these minor drug charges and Mm -hmm. basically using prisons as just like, nope, let's just round up all of these lower income people who need to do what they need to do to make money. And it doesn't sound like that was the case in Andrew's situation. He was just a college kid, maybe looking to score some extra money or things like that. Mm -hmm. But in so many other cases, lower income people are being unfairly targeted for these small little things. Oh, absolutely. Not just lower income, but minorities. Yeah. Yeah. And they're being targeted and housed in prison. So now we have these, this overpopulation of the prison system for people who aren't even hardened criminals. They're people who are selling a little bit of usually marijuana just to, again, make ends meet or do whatever reason they're doing it's such small amounts and they're getting treated like they're freaking scarface or something yeah and they deserve to be in prison which again we've talked about this i think before when you start putting people in the prison system like this which is not a very safe and secure environment and it's not no. rehabilitating in any way no now you're just creating even bigger because who knows what's happening to them in prison and what they're going to come out of prison having learned like and being what like they learned and what they need yeah, to do. You might have had to join saw. gangs to survive. You have no yeah. idea the yeah. monsters that you're creating potentially by locking up people who by who are by no means like completely innocent, but in no, no. way those hardened criminals that deserve that sort of treatment. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why. And I'm so it was totally forward-passing legalizing marijuana everywhere and once it is legalized readdressing these drug charges because people who were charged before that should not be still locked up and they should not be locked up like that when now it's all legal and there's shops all over the place yeah which i know california is doing some of that they need to do more of that i know that you can get you can move file a motion to have your record cleared now of Mm -hmm minor drug charges when it comes to marijuana yeah and again like my personal opinion marijuana should be legal it yep is not it's not like cocaine or meth or heroin or anything (laughs) near that (laughs) caliber and it shouldn't be treated like it is no so one thing and i just i wanted to tell this case that it was really important to know that these are injustices happening in the legal system. And so that's why it was a little different this case where we don't really know what happened, happened exactly, but law enforcement definitely played a role either in his homicide or his suicide. There is some probability yeah. there of Absolutely. reactions. But, you know, also just the strength of the families that like after losing their children or family members, I had that, I shared last week, um, about Hannah's family and now you have Andrew's family who are trying to make it so that these things don't happen to others and just the strength Mm -hmm. it takes to become somebody that speaks up and fights for injustice. I just want to shout out any family that does that because just moving forward has to be so hard. And And you could very easily just be like, no, screw this and give up or just not and say, I don't care about anyone else. I've lost Mm -hmm. my, my child and this sucks. And these people are to blame 
but they're taking that anger and that frustration and that hurt and they're turning it into something great for other people passing Andrew's law in North Dakota and even with Rachel's family passing it Mm -hmm. in Florida and just bringing more awareness to this and for them even to still fighting with the Supreme Court to hold these agencies somewhat accountable for even if it's just a minor accountability they need to be held accountable for this yeah because homicide or suicide they played a role in putting him in that kind of danger when it was completely unnecessary and he definitely needs to be notified that he had a right of attorney or even too that his family should have been notified by the school hey there are some agents checking out his dorm room because they believe he was selling marijuana yeah and go from there so at least they could have been made aware and even his parents could have told him no don't do this you need to we'll get you a lawyer and then we'll go from there yeah Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well thank you for sharing that yeah all right and now it's time for our super fun state facts and cities (laughs) we're getting so good at that (laughs) i know gosh i mean we should get a recording career (laughs) (laughs) well after we were singing i think we're alone now uh we were singing a bon jovi song the other day and my brothers made up mormon songs (laughs) that's right mormons on their bicycle Oh, goodness. I love it. <laughs> All right. So do you want to start with the state facts or the sure. city um, I'll start with the state facts. Okay. So North Dakota has a couple of Guinness Book of World Records. So the first one is that North Dakota has the largest metal sculpture in the world. It was erected in 2001. It is 156 feet long and 10 feet tall and weighs 75 tons, and it's called Geese in Flight. It was a retired school teacher named Gary Greff wanted to break up the tedium of on a highway, and so he built, and it looks like it's a huge kind of, I don't know, I would say metal ray of like kind of like sunburst kind of ray mm-hmm. coming out and then like cut out metal geese flying all over it. So it's on the side of a highway. And speaking from having driven down some very tedious highways in the Midwest where it's flat and straight and there's nothing to see and just like rows of fields for like miles and miles and miles, I can get why he decided that that needed to be built on a highway. So Mm -hmm. um, I'll put a picture of it on our blog. Yeah, it'd be nice to see. The next one is that North Dakota also holds the Guinness World Record for the most snow angels simultaneously made in one place. So on February 17th, shout out, that's my bro's birthday, (laughs) 2007, 8,962 people got together on the state capitol grounds and made snow angels. This beat out the record from the previous year that was made in Michigan of 3,784. So they more than doubled the number of people making snow angels. Thought those were two little fun facts about North Dakota. Don't have anything better to do. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Don't hit me, North Dakota. (laughs) That's an awesome thing to do, though, to do snow angel, because it's so easy, and then a lot of people could participate. It's not just, like, one person or people with a certain set of skills. Everyone Mm -hmm. can make a snow angel. Anybody can do it. Yeah, you just fall on your back and move your arms and legs like jumping jacks. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. For my city facts, so 
I did Valley City. I know that's not where the crime took place, but that's where Andrew basically spent his whole life. So I thought it'd be nice to do a fact from his hometown. So in Valley City, North Dakota, there is a unique coffee shop and art center. It's like a combo known as the vault. So the vault was originally built in 1920. It wasn't a coffee shop then. It was the bank of Valley City. It was called the Stavanger building. And so it continued to be banks throughout, changing to different types of banks. Then it became an office building. But finally, in 2008, two men decided to reform the building and that they wanted to uh, renovate the upstairs because it's a big bank building. So it was really large. Mm -hmm. And they renovated the upstairs to usable studios and living spaces and made the downstairs a coffee shop. But what's special about the vault is it is completely self-serve. So there's no workers there. And they have like a Keurig set up and pastries and things like that. And everything is based on the honor system. So you just remember what you get and you get your coffee and they have a credit card reader set up that you just type in how much you owe and they even let you say you don't need exact change. You can round up, round down if you need a break, uh, round up if you want to help the keep the coffee shop stay in business. And they just operate that. It's a night they they haven't really gotten raw. They have some cameras there just again for safety, but the people are generally respectful of that. And they since the first seven months of being open, they actually averaged 15% more than their asking prices wow. um, because people were willing to help it out. So they even too, if you're not paying with card, they have like a little slot in the desk that sets up where people can drop like a check and that's something that says like, here's where to make your check out to and you can drop cash in there and things like that. So you can just help keep them alive. And like I said, they also have like a little art studio. So they have... Uh, local artists and things like that that they promote and so they support all of that they even have chairs where they can do show like old movies and they have big screens where they can do any type of exhibits a small theater performances all kinds of stuff happen at the vault so it seems like a really great place to go and I thought that was super unique it is that's really cool town of valley city so if you're ever there go check out the vault yeah a lot of trustworthy people yeah, and they even said it probably wouldn't work everywhere, but at least yeah. in this small town, it there's just good people trying to help out, and so they've been doing pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. I don't see that working in Fresno. I'm just going to be super honest. I worked at a coffee shop in Fresno. There is absolutely no way that would work. <laughs> I think it would have to be a small town where kind of everybody yes. holds other people accountable, you know? So yeah. it's kind of like, hey, don't mess around. Like, everyone knows everybody, like you were saying before. Yeah. You know, small towns. Yeah, that would definitely work in a small town. Well, thanks for sharing that. So my city, as I told you, everybody, was Turtle Lake, and it's very, very small, so it was kind of difficult to find a fun fact. But I also mentioned Washburn, which is right next to Turtle Lake, and that's where the sheriff is from. And so Washburn is known for Fort Mandan, so it was named after the Mandan tribe. And that is where Lewis and Clark spent the longest amount of time. So North Dakota is the longest amount of time that they spent when they were traveling to the Pacific. They spent the winter of 1804 at the Mandan Fort. And you can go visit it. However, it's not the original fort. They built a replica. 
because they're not even quite sure exactly where the original fort was. So oh, they think okay. it's probably under a river. But you can go and tour it. It's about a one to two hour tour. Very cool. They have a kids play area. But it's closed from October 1st to April 1st. Just so you know if you're planning to go because North Dakota winters are bitter ass cold. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, does that have to do with the weather? <laughs> I am sure. <laughs> Nobody wants to go in a whole bunch of snow and negative three degrees. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So if you're planning your trip, plan for uh, summertime summer, fall yeah. or even spring. early fall. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Early fall, springtime and summer. Yeah. So that was my interesting fact. So that's just right out. That's like 17 miles from Turtle Lake. Nice. Very cool. I feel like we're going to be running into this issue a little bit with these Midwest states because we're running into small towns, which is nice, but it's kind of harder to find facts. So as we start moving through these kind of Midwest states where towns tend to be a little bit smaller, if you know any fun facts, please send them our way because uh, you guys can kind of track us. We're going in this very weird zigzag mm -hmm. pattern. So if you know something coming up about a state, let us know. And you can email us at stateofmurderpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for joining us again today. We are making our way through the States. So next week we will be in South Dakota. I knew that because. Yes, North Dakota, Dakota, South Dakota. <laughs> Where Mount Rushmore is. That's right. Where Mount Rushmore is. There's a lot of South I've been to South Dakota, so there's a lot of fun things in South Dakota. Mount Rushmore was not one of them, but there are some <laughs> other fun things in South Dakota. So hopefully we'll be talking about some of those fun things in our fun facts. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at SOM Podcast. You can stay up to date. We did have technical difficulties with the Wyoming episode, so if you're ever wondering where an episode is, most likely we've posted about what's going on on our Facebook and our Instagrams. So you could always check that out to stay up to date. Hopefully we won't run into crossing our fingers. Won't end up into any more technical difficulties coming up. And so you should be getting your episodes every Thursday. They drop midnight Pacific time because that's where we're at. That's right. Like I mentioned before, if you have any fun state facts of things coming up, any cases coming up in states that are we're headed to that you want to let us know about, or if you just want to say hi and let us know a little bit about you, we'd love to hear from you. And so email us at stateofmurderpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's everything. Oh, yeah. don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook to let people know what you like about us so that way you can help more people find who we are and maybe they'll enjoy us too so yeah yeah all right so thank guys. you well, for, thank you thank you for listening and we'll see you next week yeah. bye, bye.